Well, we continue on in our series through Hebrews called Jesus Is. And tonight, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have a tough passage. Like this, this is this is this could mess up your theology kind of passage. All right, this is why it's exciting to walk through books of the Bible, because even as a pastor, I'm tempted not only for my own sake, but for your sake to want to skip over some passages in the Bible. But you can't. And ultimately, it's for our good. There's nothing in here that's not for our good. And so tonight is one of those cases, but it's going to take, um, take God's Spirit speaking to you. I don't know what words are going to come out of my mouth. I pray that they are uh, theologically accurate. I, I have prepared for that to happen. But even what I'm saying, I know, can be taken in a lot of different ways. And so I am counting on God's Spirit to do what only His Spirit can do, His Word to do what only His Word can do. So last week we talked about how Jesus in the New Covenant, He is the way, He is life-giving. And if He's life-giving, then His commands, which sometimes seem not so life-giving, they, they have to be life-giving. So how do you take the commands of Christ and the nature of him just being life-giving? How do you gel the two? And we saw that uh, you can, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. It's all for our good. This week, we're going to be talking about how God's grace in this new covenant gels with God's wrath. Now, some of you, just right off the top, you're thinking to yourself, okay, it makes sense. Yeah, we're talking about the gospel. So for those who don't follow Jesus, who hate God, yeah, there's wrath for them. They're going to hell. We get that. We understand that. And for those who don't, and they, they do place their faith in Jesus, they want to follow him, like, it's, it's all great. Like, we're covered under grace. But yet, even in the Christian life, we're tempted to abuse grace. I know young man after young man, all of us, but particularly young men, they struggle looking at things they shouldn't look at, doing things they shouldn't, walking out of their old life into a new life, and just the, the I, I know the message, but I'm having a hard time just not disobeying God. It happens to all of us. But tonight, the reason the passage is so hard is because it's pretty evident that God's harsh discipline, you can even say punishment, is for not just unbelievers, but sometimes it's for believers. That is going to be earth-shaking. But you'll see, hopefully very quickly, um, that it's not something you need to worry about unless you're in that place. And we'll get there. Now, keep in mind, context-wise, here's what the people receiving this letter have gone through. In chapter 2, the author of Hebrews uh, is warning them. There's five major warnings in the book of Hebrews, and we're on number four tonight. He warned them way back in chapter 2 that you have drifted from the word. You've drifted from the gospel, and, and that's dangerous. Because then, in chapter 3, he says, here's the second warning. You've drifted, and now I'm warning you not to doubt. But you're doubting. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he goes on in the third warning. He says, okay, you've drifted, you've doubted, and now you've become dull. Remember we are talking about the loss of salvation, all that in Hebrews 6? He says, you've become dull, and now the very fourth warning here in chapter 10 is that you've drifted, you've doubted, you've become dull, and now you despise God's word. You despise the gospel. Like They're in a rough spiritual place. So that's important to know. If you've got a Bible, feel free to jump in with us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 39, we're going to walk through tonight. Now this first part is the scary stuff. 
It'll be hopefully more encouraging after this. But I don't, I don't want to just flippantly run through this. So we're going to park on this. This is kind of a little sermon in and of a sermon. But we're going to park three times tonight. And this first time, this first passage is, is the warning. So the author says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for, for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That'll make sense after a bit. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right, first thing we see is the warning for present rebellion, current rebellion. So this is, this is rebellion happening right now in your life. So we, we got to ask ourselves some questions, okay? Here, here's the questions I think, uh, if you're like me, you read this and you have a few questions. The first one um, is, is the author talking about believers or non-believers? It's kind of like Hebrews 6. Um, we're going to see some things here where it says you were enlightened and these, the same kind of lingo that we had for Hebrews 6 where we determined pretty sure you can't lose your salvation. Now, there's two key factors in here. Number one, um, in understanding, is he talking to believers or non-believers? It says you have he who was sanctified. So he's talking about people who have been made holy. They have been made clean, not just enlightened, but they, they have been saved. Here's the second part that's important in the context of understanding we're talking about believers. Is that it says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It doesn't say annihilate. Most scholars, most theologians understand that he is not talking about hell. Okay, So we're talking about a condition for people who have been enlightened, who have been made holy, who have been sanctified, believers, and there's a fearful expectation there can be that doesn't include loss of salvation or going to hell. So this opens a door for us that's really scary. So the second question I think we have to ask ourselves is do believers get punished for sins even after an understanding that Jesus 2,000 years ago took the punishment on his back? How much worse the punishment? Can you say that we as believers don't have to fear punishment for our sins? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Can you say we as believers should fear punishment for our sins? Absolutely, yes. Told you, your theology is going to get all messed up tonight. Both. And it's going to depend on something. We'll get there. 
You see, punishment uh, in our minds comes across when we talk about discipline versus punishment. Punishment in our minds is, is God intentionally coming after someone and, and punishing them, but punishment here in the original language is, is telling us, I don't, and I don't want to demean punishment here, please, by no means, but it's telling us that God is letting us experience the consequence for our actions, Okay? So he, he's not saying that, well, I'm going to go, okay, Jesus, he, he died for some stuff, but not all of it. No, we just read that he died once and for all for all of us, for all who believe, okay? But, but there's God sometimes is telling us, sometimes I'm going to let you just experience the consequences of your mistakes. Now, this, this is for a very specific group of believers, and we'll get there. It's kind of like if a little kid... A little kid can be disciplined in a lot of ways. If, uh, if a little kid touches something they shouldn't, you say, don't touch that. You can flick their finger. But sometimes, if, if, if there's a hot stove and you say, don't touch it, sometimes the punishment is that you just let them touch the hot stove. And they just got to feel the burn a little bit. Discipline can look like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you a little pop on the finger, and discipline could be, you know what? you got to get out of the house. One seems a little harsher than the other. But it's all discipline. Chapter 12 is going to teach us about a father's love, that it requires discipline. So for every believer, God disciplines us, okay? But it's been said before that there are sad consequences for forgiven sins. There are sad consequences for forgiven sins. Sometimes there are. So you can be forgiven and still face consequences for our actions. Obviously, if you murder someone, you can be forgiven, but you probably still got to go to prison. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm, I, I can't promise, but I'm pretty sure this all makes sense here in a second. Third question I would ask. piggybacking on that second question, there's a special place, there's a special kind of discipline for those who are rebellious. That's what qualifies you to receive this kind. Those who are rebellious, those who hate God. Still say, I believe God, but right now I'm just angry at him and I'm going to rebel even though I know better. So the third question is right now, your and I, our disobedience, is it this kind of rebellion? Like, is this us? Like, should we have a fearful expectation? And I can't answer that for you. What I can answer is that there's a huge difference between struggling Christians, who God disciplines all of us, we're all in that boat, and those who should expect this kind of fearful expectation. Okay? There's a big difference, and the difference is rebellion. Deliberate rebellion. So, let's walk through it. First off, in, in verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, that means willfully. Willfully. So, right off the bat, we see the qualification. You want to have this kind of fearful expectation for believers? It's not for the average Joe who's just struggling and insecure in their faith. It's for those who are saying, you know what? I heard it. I believe it. But right now, I've got both hands up to God. Still going to do whatever I want. I'm just going to be rebellious. You say, well, there's not many people who are like that. I think we've all been there. 
But some do that. I'll give you an example in just a bit. Some do that. So it's for those who are deliberately sinning against God. Now remember, here way back in the Old Testament, the author's drawing, he's talking about an Old Covenant, New Covenant. And remember in the Old Covenant, let me flip really fast. In the Old Covenant, I'm going to read to you. Uh, there was no, there was no sacrifice for those deliberate sins. It says in Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. Okay, makes sense. That's a sacrificial system. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So this goes for everybody. But the person who does anything with a high hand, this means I get it, I heard your message, God, I know your ways, and I'm still gonna do whatever I want. Like right now, I'm gonna rebel, a high hand. Anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised, despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity, his sin shall be on him. Again, you don't think of this in the Old Testament, but for those who are just like, yep, the whole sacrificial system was for unintentional sins. And so the author's paralleling saying, hey, you know what? In the Old Testament, you had to beg for God's mercy and come to him in faith and repentance if you wanted forgiveness for the deliberate sins. In the New Testament, the author's saying, listen, if you know the gospel, but you are just rebellious, there's not much we can help you with. Now, verses 27 and, and 28 here, it, it talks about this fire that will consume, okay? Again, and not annihilate, but consume you. Like, this is a bad thing. This is a bad, bad thing. And in verse 28, it says that anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this seems, this seems even more harsh, but let me go back to the Old Testament, and this is how they dealt with things in the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. If there is found among you with any of, within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. You go up, you go up ask them, what are they doing? That's what he's saying. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman, woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person who shall not be a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Then he says, so you purge the evil from your midst. So the author's saying, hey, in the Old Testament, if you think it was bad, someone said, hey, we hear your law, we love it, but right now we're going to go serve other gods and follow all kinds of weird things. You know what? I'm telling you, you can two or three people say that's what's happening, and you go talk to them, and it's really what's happening, you can kill them. What? Sounds crazy. The author's saying, if you think that's bad, 
What happens that much more when God sends his son, gives you a whole new covenant, you receive it and and you love it, but then you say, you know what, I'm still going to rebel with a high hand towards God saying, I recognize you and your ways and this new covenant, but I'm doing my own thing. How much more should those people fear some punishment? What? Is this still the New Testament? Is this still the new covenant? Men, Christians, we hate this text. We hate it. We don't know what to do with it. In third world countries and other countries, people deal with death and wrath in, in, in ways every day that we, we can't even imagine. Like they experience it sometimes on levels that we can't even imagine. In America, we get so angry, like we don't handle death very well. The idea of God's wrath in any way, shape, or form makes us upset. We, we can't picture a loving God having wrath. So like when the ambulance is here in three minutes instead of two minutes and 59 seconds, we get angry because we have a right to live and nobody dies. We spend our whole lives trying to figure out how we can live longer, how we can be healthier because we just hate death and we're scared of it. And yet so many people all around the world right now are experiencing wrath and death in ways that would Humble us beyond belief. I'm not saying death and wrath are good, but they're there. And so what happens in our American Christianity is we say, you know what? The only way we can tolerate the gospel, and it's hard to even tolerate it like this, is to say, if you don't believe, then you're going to hell. Okay, we get that. We're not going to talk much about that because that's scary, and I don't want to be mean to anyone. But for Christians, the only way, and you've heard me even say this, and I'll stand by it, but it's not, there's more to the story. The only way we can be motivated to obey God, to serve God, to do what's right, to have a relationship with Jesus, is if we're compelled by God's amazing love and grace and mercy. If you're compelled by anything else, it's a bad motivation. Guess what? We don't know what to do with the fear of God. But the Bible is very clear that even for believers, we should have a fear if we are in rebellion. And and so you say, well, you mean you're telling us that the author wants us to be compelled to obedience in Jesus and not be rebellious because we fear an expectation that's bad? I think that's what he's saying. Well, no, that's not my God. He's just loving and he's wonderful and he would never hurt anybody. If he would send his son to die for us, That shows both his amazing love and his wrath. If it's poured out on him, and you look at him and say, you know what, I hate you. I believe in you. Right now I'm struggling and I'm going to do my own thing. What he's saying, what God's saying is, I'm never going to be okay under any circumstances with rebellion. And so as believers, we struggle with abusing grace because we understand, you know what, as a non-believer, okay, I get it. There's wrath for disobedience, but I'm just always covered by grace and wonderful things when I'm a believer and God will always have mercy. And it's true, but you should still have a fearful expectation of a wrath that sometimes can feel worse than even death. And I'm not talking about going to hell, not that kind of wrath, but on earth in your rebellion, there's consequences sometimes. And God says, you know what? That's my way of telling you that you can still be saved, but if you rebel at any point, I am not okay with it. I'm just not. How could he do that? How could he not? He's still just. His love and his grace and his mercy doesn't mean that he's not just, and they're not opposed to each other. 
Well, I just love the testimonies, Pastor Ryan, that we all have, which is, uh, I got saved at kids camp, but then through my teenage years, I rebelled, and I went off and I did my own thing at college. I mean, everyone else was kind of doing that. And then I came back when I had kids, and I thought, well, what did my parents do? Okay, they went to church, I'm going to go back to church, and now everything's good, and I just want to testify that God is good, because he, he you know, he, I just through those years that I rebelled, he brought me back. Yeah, he is good. You got that right. But if you love stories of rebellion, you're on the wrong side of God. But we all think we got to have a little bit of rebellion to make our testimony good. No, <laughs> we got enough rebellion without some more rebellion as believers to make this thing good. The grace of God is good enough. I think you got to ask yourself, those hard questions all throughout the scripture, you see God letting believers experience consequences and punishment that makes you kind of stand back and say, mm, that doesn't gel. Like, I don't understand why he let that happen. Why is he letting people, uh, you know, who lie but seem to be following God and acts get struck down? Because they come up to Peter and say, no, I sold all my land and I gave it to the people, gave all the money away. No, I think you hid some for yourself. Boom, you're dead. What? How can the Israelites, you saw all God's amazingness, and he says, this is my chosen people. You're going to be let out in the exodus like I did all of this for you. Boom, you complain, you grumble, you know my ways, but you still want to rebel against me. You're all dead. You're not seeing the promised land. What do we do in Corinthians where we see Paul addressing believers and say, you want to know why you don't hear from God? Because you're mean to your wives. And you want to know why some of you have fallen asleep, died? Because you came in here to take the Lord's Supper and you just guzzled down the wine and you ate up the bread because you just didn't care. Eat at home before you come. Doesn't sound like too bad of a sin to me. Paul's saying, some of you croaked off because of this. What do we do with those? Do we just ignore them? I think they're an encouragement. You say, well, okay, I told you we were going to park on this one for a bit. You say, so how can I, like, what, what does it look like? Okay, so am I in that rebellion? Can I expect, like, like some circumstances in, in life, like God's just going to let me deal with some things? Because, I, like, am I, am I, can I expect that right now? Because I'm disobedient, right? Number one, again, you don't need to be insecure if you're just a, a Christian who's stumbling and, and you genuinely are in repentance and, and you want to follow God. You, you don't need to be insecure. But if your heart gets set against him, and it's a slow fade, and it usually doesn't happen overnight, you should be aware that he might let you deal with some stuff and not take that off your plate. And, and so, I thought about this. Um, this is, this is going to sound perverted, probably, um, And you're, I'm going to give you an example from my, my heathen days. Okay, these are pre-Jesus in Pastor Ryan's life. Um, but when I look back at my life and I see someone in this rebellion and to experience some, some wrath, I, I think back to the story because even as a non-believer, it was clear-cut to me. Okay, so I grew up in a small town. I was in high school. I was running back, playing you know, on the football team. All that was great. You know, young, young men and women in a small town who have no moral compass, they hate God, they could care less about him, which I was in that boat. Um, they're going to do whatever promiscuous things they can. Um, 
I, I remember most of my friends, the goal before the end of high school was just to sleep with as many women as you could. Um, like that was just a goal. Like that was, that was a, that was an, a badge of honor. I remember when I was a senior in high school, there was a gal um, who was known for being kind of a goody-goody Christian. Everyone knew kind of where she stood on her beliefs. I remember one week, she came up to me and handed me a note. And within this note, it essentially said, here's what I want to do, and I choose you. Meet me here at this time. Now, as a young heathen, I was thinking to myself, man, it's a pretty good deal. But even as someone far from God, I recognized something ain't right. I remember talking to that girl and saying, I thought you were a goody-goody Christian. Like, I thought, I thought, like, this is nuts to me. This is fairly gross just for anybody. Now, as a young punk kid, I wasn't complaining too much. But I remember her almost hollow in her eyes saying, yeah, I know what's right. And I'm still going to do this. I entered into a relationship with this girl. And she rebelled and used her rebellion. Used me as a, as a tool for her rebellion. By God's grace, he brought her back and ended up saving me out of the whole deal. Both physically and spiritually. But I remember thinking, this is kind of crazy that you were so rebellious and okay with it. As that relationship went on, we drove each other to such mental torment that I remember one time on the phone, she literally, as much as a 17, 18-year-old can have a mental breakdown, had a mental breakdown. (laughs) One of her parents picked up the phone and says, you can't talk to my daughter anymore. She's mentally thrashed because of you. I could tell you all kinds of horrible things in that relationship, not not just what it was founded on, but how God let it unfold in her life. And I know she dealt with issues from that from from months and years on. And again, uh, God's redemption, he brought her back. And I believe she is still obedient to him. I haven't talked to her in a bunch of years. And, and saved me out of it. But I remember thinking, hmm, that just looks not like what a Christian should do. And God let her, let, he let me be an agent of wrath, of harsh discipline, and she had to deal with it. Like he just, he, She just, high hand towards God, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I imagine a lot of us have been in that place. But you know what? As scary as this passage gets, even down into verse 31, where it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the thing that scares us the most about this passage also gives us the most hope. The thing that scares us the most gives us the most hope because the rebellious believer... The rebellious believer, if they say, I don't, I'm going to trample the cross, I don't care about it anymore, and they're going to have to deal with some of the consequences of their behavior, guess what? They still have the cross. Like, if you want to turn from your sins and not be rebellious, you still have the cross. 
The author's not saying that, hey, there's a point where you get to where, you know what, you don't have the cross. No, you still have the cross. It's just, is your heart going to be rebellious and receive it or not? And David, in all of his adultery, knowing, I see Bathsheba, and and I know what I shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it anyway. And and then there's murder, and there's cover-up. There's all kinds of things that he knew. He knew they were all wrong. And in Psalm 51, he confesses, and he says, God, with a high hand, I did these things to you. And I'm begging for your mercy. I'm begging for your compassion on me. I know that you can, God. And in 1 Chronicles, oh man, in 1 Chronicles, 21.13, 21.13, it says, this is David, let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. Oh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but David's saying, it's also the most wonderful thing that can happen to you. So if you turn from your rebellion, you still have this very beautiful thing. Let me bottom line this for you in saying that if your gospel does not include God's wrath, it's no gospel at all. And if your gospel only includes bad things for unbelievers and decent to good to better things for believers, but believers, when they abuse grace, it's okay for God. It's still grace. It's not okay. And it doesn't mean that he's going to say, oh, you lose your salvation, you're cast into hell. but he might let you experience some junk in an attempt to draw you back in. Now it gets a little more encouraging. We'll move through the last two a little quicker. In verses 32 through 34. So now what does he do? He just kind of hammered him a bit. The author says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, or an eternal one. Second thing we see is the reminder of faith. So the first thing we see is the warning for present rebellion. And now the author says, I'm going to remind you uh, of your faith. I'm going to remind you of what it was like. Obviously, the Hebrew people were in a bad place spiritually. So maybe you find yourself there and you're like, well, I don't know that I'm necessarily in rebellion right now. But maybe, maybe I'm drifting and then I'm doubting and then I'm dull. Like, eh, you know, despising comes next. So you're doing a heart check, thinking maybe, is this just spiritual apathy? I think we've all been there. I mean, have you been there? If you're not currently there, have you been there? Where you've drifted, doubted, dull, and now despising a little bit? Have you been there? Have you been to that place where you just feel like, man, I, I know I have access to God, but I don't feel the presence of God. I talk to him, I pray to him, I just don't feel like he's there. And I live disobediently a lot of the times, and I know better, but I'm just, I'm just, uh, whatever. And I don't really see the power of God. But most times I live like I don't care if I see the power of God. You're just in a spiritual whirlwind of bad stuff. 
So the author says, you know what? I know you guys are in a hard place, but I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to remind you of what life looked like when your faith had feet. Like, okay, I'm, I want you, I want to, I want to bring you back in here. Okay, I want to tell you, you know, there was a time. Remember in the former days, like when you first believed and you were on fire, when you, when you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle and you suffered and you were publicly exposed, there was accusations and then there was beatings, there were sufferings publicly. You guys experienced that. Not only that, but you had compassion for those who were in prison. You're like, oh, I get it. Like they're in prison for their faith and that's amazing and, and sometimes those who were being beat were your best friends and your family and those who were being ridiculed they were close to you and you you were just you're going to stand with them you're going to stand with them like you're willing to do anything for the gospel do you remember back then when you were on fire for jesus and he's saying i want to remind you of that you didn't care if they stole all your stuff if they took all your stuff because you knew you weren't meant for this earth that there is a heavenly dwelling that you were going to and you were just okay with it like, you remember when the gospel hits you in such a way that that's how you felt about life? And you couldn't even understand how other people couldn't feel that way about life? Like, you remember those days? So why would someone even want to remind people of this past? What is he, just rubbing it in their face? Like, hey, remember? It used to be better. <laughs> no, he's not doing it to rub in their face. You see what happens when you and I go into rebellion, we often want to seek a new way to get back to where we should be. We seek all kinds of new ways. We don't want to go back. Like we know I need to go home. I need to go back to the gospel, but I'm, I want to find a new way. And so we seek out new stuff all the time. I hear people who struggle spiritually on a regular basis. You, you can just tell like discontents like bubbling up. And it usually starts with six months earlier. Hey, I, I feel like I'm just really seeking God on this. Could you pray for me? And, and then, okay, pray. And then you talk to him. Like, I think God's wanting me to do this. And okay, it's like, are you doing it? Well, I just, and then the excuses start. And then they just end up not doing it. And so then all of a sudden they start backing away a little bit. And they're like, oh, spiritually, I feel like you're a little bit cold. And then finally, down the road, it gets to the point where you're just like, oh, I can tell something's not okay with you. What's going on? And they start saying things like, uh, I don't know. I think I, uh, spiritually, I just, uh, I don't know. Like you can just see them oozing discontent. They say things like, I just, I think I just need a change. I just need a change. I need, so I need something, I need a change. Okay, this is us now seeking that new way to come back, but we, we don't really want to come back to the gospel, you know, and that's what hurts when you're, when you're having these conversations. So then you start seeing the plethora of fruit from this kind of discontentment. Oh, six months ago, you loved your job. All of a sudden, you're applying and for 10 different jobs in 10 different states. What happened? I just feel like I need, to, I need a new start. Your marriage was good a couple years ago. I just, oh, I don't know. It's just not. Maybe we weren't meant together. Maybe it is God's will. All of a sudden, you're justifying looking for a new spouse, looking for a new job, looking for a new, you fill in the blank. I just, I don't know, Crosspoint used to be so much more gospel-centered. I just think I need to go to a new church. We're just not getting fed. I think you got fed. You just didn't really want to consume it, <laughs> and, and you spit it back out. Now you're saying you want something else to chew on, but you're not going to ever swallow. And it's tempting for you and I when we hear those things and we see, man, discontentment is leading to a plethora of bad choices because you're rebelling against God and it's evident to everyone. It's, it, it's so tempting for you and I to just be like, 
You know what? You know what's right. Just be obedient. But what the author's doing is saying, I'm not just going to tell you, just be obedient. I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to remind you. Remember the good old days? You remember how good it was? Come on back. Come on back home. I'm not going to tell you that that you shouldn't do bad stuff. I'm going to tell you, you know what it's like to experience the good stuff. Why do you remember when you came to Christ? Sometimes, I don't know, just even as a leader, um, I, I remember when I was really on fire early in my walk with Christ. And, and you know, as a leader, sometimes you, it's hard to discern. Sometimes you just get beat up spiritually. Um, and so uh, it's not necessarily a disobedience issue, but you know, you just take arrow after arrow, arrow from the enemy. Uh, but it feels like you lose your passion sometimes. Sometimes I, I sit in that office and I've got tons of busy work to do, and I even do good pastoral stuff, and it looks like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I question, like, do I really have, like, that joy that I once had? Like, do I, do I really still have that? You could drive yourself crazy, psychoanalyzing yourself. I told Tara last night, like, I don't, sometimes I just don't know if I had, if I have that. I just don't know. So then I start finding what spiritually sluggish people do, and that's looking for something else to put their hope in. And so I find myself going home, and I, I, want, uh, I, want, to, I want to fix something. I remember last night I went home. I, I don't do any construction on the house during the week. You know, I come home and spend time with my family, but I just remember my hope was that, like, maybe I could paint this one bedroom and get a little bit of work done. And it's like, there's a difference between enjoying that kind of thing and looking for your spiritual hope in that kind of thing. And I found myself like, really? Is that really what I want to do after a long day of work? No, I just, I'm, I'm a little discontent. You can look in your life right now at the things that are tempting you. You're struggling with God maybe a little bit, and you're moving towards rebellion, but you're just, oh, you know, there's a job opportunity here. Maybe I should do that, or maybe I should, uh, I just don't know. I need a shake-up. No, you need to go back home. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to go back to the gospel. And you know better And in fact, we know in the gospel that it's not even a matter of being on fire like you were at the beginning. It's that you can have all that again and even more. Like that, back in the day, that wasn't even as good as it gets. What is your heart yearning for right now? Like what's it whispering to you in the quiet moments of discontentment? What's it, what's it? What's it trying to pursue? Because what you pursue today, you're going you're gonna to reap the blessing or curse of in the morning. So right now you don't see the fruit, but you know your heart's whispering a little bit. And that's scary. And then, you know, you get to the point where when you drift and you doubt and you become dull and you say, wow, the next one, the fourth warning to despise God, that seems like a big old jump. But what happens is you start to see when you're disobedient and you're living in rebellion, you start to view God slowly but surely as the enemy. Does he really have the best plan for my life? If he really loved me, he would have given me some of these things that I desired and they're not happening. And you start to view God as the enemy. God's not the enemy. He's the way out. And the enemy is deceiving us. It doesn't get better than Jesus. It will never get better than Jesus. You don't move past the gospel. You go deeper in the gospel. And you find that he is always enough. 
He's always enough. What's your heart searching after right now? Last four verses. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, now we're quoting some Old Testament stuff, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So for those, just theologically, for those who are on the, the you can lose your salvation bandwagon, which we've seen scripture teach us appropriately and properly on that, um, they will use not only Hebrews 6, but they'll also say things like, well, the, we know that you can lose your salvation because that's why we have all of the, hey, just endure, just persevere, just keep going. That's why we have all those verses. No, that's not why we have all those verses. But it's true. There's a need for endurance and there's a need for perseverance. So the last thing we see here should be number three, but it's number two again. Encouragement from a future reality. The coming of Christ. You know what? Sometimes Silas, my little boy, sometimes he eats his lunch or dinner. Sometimes he, he eats it because of dessert. And you say, well, what is that, manipulating? Are you begging it? Like, are you, are you bribing him? Well, it could be bribing if there's an opportunity that he doesn't get a cookie. Or if there's just a promise of a cookie, <laughs> then that's just motivation that he knows, I'm going to eat all this because I got a cookie coming. You say, that's some, that doesn't feel like great parenting. Spiritually, it's kind of what this is. The author's saying, you know what, don't rebel, but understand Jesus is coming back. There's a future reality here. He can come back at any moment like it's going to be better. It's going to come. He, he understands the struggle you're in. Keep on walking. Keep on moving. There's promises. There's rewards. Like, like don't stop. Don't stop. You know, don't stop. But sometimes you and I, we feel so beat up spiritually that we can't see the forest through the trees. And so the author says, here's the present warning. Do not, do not despise God and be in rebellion. And I'm going to remind you how good it was in the, the past for you. And now I'm going to tell you, hey, you got something to look forward to. And so he's saying, I'm going to widen your perspective right now. And that you're not going to just get bogged down in your current circumstances. See the big picture. And we say, yeah, I know Jesus is coming back, but like, what is that, just some Kirk Cameron Hollywood movie? Like, what, what does it really mean? Do we understand, like, when Jesus comes back, it, it's not just that this is going to end, uh, which in and of itself is wonderful, because right now, for some of us, we feel like our faith and our struggle sometimes in our obedience is just endless. Like, like it just it keeps on going, but there is an end, and it could be any second. But not only that, do we understand that when Jesus comes back, now we've heard that what he did on a cross 2,000 years ago, and it is true that he died and was, took the punishment for our sins so that we don't have to have the punishment for sins. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, you're contradicting. No, 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 no. If you're not in rebellion, you ain't got nothing to worry about. And so he took the punishment of sins, and now he's, he's saving us currently. Like he, He's giving us freedom from the power of sin over our lives, saying through the Holy Spirit and dwelling, this is the gospel. You don't have to fall victim to the power of sin. And now when Jesus comes back, we will not be in the presence of sin. 
So the punishment, the power, and the presence of sin, gone through the gospel. He's saying, do you understand, like, take a deep breath spiritually. Do you understand what it's going to feel like to have that deep breath eternally? Like, do you understand the freedom knowing that sin can't even tempt you? Like, you can't be tempted. You can't be messed with. When Jesus comes back, you're not going to have to worry about rebellion anymore. Do you understand the spiritual freedom of that? It's going to be amazing. But it's hard to be patient, isn't it? I'm 31 years old. And in the last 10 years, Tara and I, we, we've owned four houses. In Hutchinson, we, we bought a little house. Prior to marriage, I bought it. Within three years, it was sold. Moved to Salina. Bought a new house. Within two years, it was sold. Moved to Virginia, thank God, didn't buy a house. <laughs> Moved to Utah, thank God we didn't buy a house. Moved to Nebraska, within nine months it sold. Nine months. I don't even have to describe to you the bad financial decision that is. Moved to Salina. We plan on being here for a while. So don't... But I look back at that and I think, boy, that just seems goofy. And what happens is you see this, this constant battle in our hearts of, I want to plant roots with something and on something here, but yet we're still moving around and things are crazy and that happens to us spiritually. And the author's saying, plant your roots on something firm, the gospel. It is worth it. It is not going to change. But in and of itself, there is some change actually occurring. The gospel message itself doesn't change, but the change is that you will not be here like this forever. And there's great hope in that. There's so much great hope in that. Because, like I said, we feel so often like there's not. Like it's never going to end. And it will. And he's saying you should be encouraged in that. And your life and my life, listen, our, our lives are littered with the evidence of our rebellion to God. Littered with bad choices. But he's saying it doesn't have to be that way. And even in those things, God wants to redeem them and make them valuable. This quote here in 37 and 38, as we start seeing these different quotes, it comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. And so basically what he's telling us is essentially, hey, this is what faith looks like. It puts its hope on Jesus, the coming one. So not just that he's coming back again, but what he did 2,000 years ago, which would have been coming for them in Habakkuk hundreds of years earlier. So the hope, the faith is in Jesus. It's also in the future that he's coming, but it also means that the righteous ones, don't just, they don't just get saved by grace through faith. They live and walk by faith. That the gospel isn't just for salvation, it's for everyday life. It's not just the gate we enter through, but it's what we live in every single day. And as we jump into Hebrews chapter 11, it's going to be faith, 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 faith. And it's going to be uplifting. So right now, I ask you as we start to move to the end of this. When you came to Christ, knowing the drama and the craziness in your life, you heard the gospel message maybe in this very room. Somewhere you heard the gospel and you thought to yourself, I think Jesus is better than what I got going on for myself.
And you trusted that. And you walked by faith in that. And maybe tonight, you might still find that you trust it and you see those wonderful days of old where you caught on fire for the first time. But I'm going to ask you right now, if you're not in rebellion, but you feel like you might be drifting into it, where is your faith in? Is your hope right now as you leave here, is your hope in that, hey, you know what, you're not in this current job forever. This isn't your career. Like just, you'll get out of it. Is that where your hope is? Well, okay, I'm single right now, but my hope is that one day I won't be single and it's going to be so much better. Or I'm married, and you know what? Right now, we don't have kids or grandkids, but when we do, it's just going to be better. Or when I finish that degree, like that's where my hope is because it's going to be better. I don't want to assume that our faith is still in the same thing it was back then. Because if it really was in the same thing it was back then, then we would be seeing the same fire and power that we saw back then. Do you still believe and still walk in that faith? If you find yourself struggling tonight, I encourage you as we leave here, the gospel is enough. It will always be enough. And you don't have to live in insecurity about your struggles in the faith. But if you find yourself even sniffing rebellion, you need to know how God feels about rebellion. But you also need to know that the same hope you had that saved you, that same hope is still with you. And the gospel that says, hey, I give you the spirit of God to Secure your soul is also the spirit that says you don't have to fall into the temptation of rebellion against God right now. It's the same spirit that overcomes rebellion. It's the same cross that saved you years ago. It's the same cross you can go back to tonight. None of that has ever changed. And so if you find yourself drifting or slipping from that, you got to go home tonight. You got to go home, and I'm telling you, just like David in First Chronicles, Being in the hand of God is a beautiful thing because that's where his mercy is. You might have learned a thing or two tonight or maybe you got more confused. But the gospel hasn't changed. Where's our heart at? That's what changes. Let's pray.